Thanks for tuning in today. You're listening to the official podcast of First Alliance Church in Great Falls, Montana, creating passionate followers of Christ. Today's message is from lead pastor John Reese. First Corinthians 13:7 says, <clears throat> "Love always protects, always trusts, always hopes, and always perseveres." In this series that we got halfway through this Christmas because I was gone, um, we've been looking at Paul's description of Christian love in 1 Corinthians 13 and talking about how Jesus is the model of Christian love. And last week we saw that love always protects. We saw that Jesus was willing to bear the weight of our sin by going to the cross for us. And it was only love for us that would cause him to endure all that he endured for our salvation. Today, then, we want to conclude this series, and we've left some portions out because we didn't have time, but we want to conclude this series by talking about the last three characteristics of love in this list, and that is that love always trusts, always hopes, and always perseveres. And and notice the word always in in those phrases. Paul redundantly repeats the phrase always in front of each verb to express the limitless character of love's actions. So first then, Paul says, love always trusts. The the King James and ESV versions say, love bears all things. Um, Love believes all things, I should say. But, but that, that can be kind of misleading because it gives the impression that love isn't really discerning, that love believes anything. It's kind of gullible. You know, what, what does love believes all things mean? Well, it, it's been interpreted in two different ways. Some people say that love always believes the best about people. In, in other words, rather than assuming the worst about somebody, love believes the best about them. It gives them the benefit of the doubt. And we're often warned, however, um, not to trust people too much, but the people who hold this interpretation say that the person who loves would rather trust too much than too little, and they choose to believe the best about people. That's a real popular interpretation of this verse. It's been around forever. But... Let me ask you, is it always wise to be naive about other people? Is it always wise to, to, to really trust them and be completely trusting of them? You know, how many times have you trusted somebody who's really let you down? Or trusted somebody who wasn't worthy of your trust? The second interpretation of this verse is love always trusts. And Phil Riken explains that this interpretation in this way. He says, instead of taking the word all, the Greek word penta, as a noun meaning all things, we can take it as an adverb meaning always. In other words, love doesn't believe all things, it always believes. And in this interpretation, it's not about the object of love's faith, what we believe, it's about the perseverance 
of love's faith under what circumstances we will continue believing. And several translations approach it that way. They're saying love continues to believe through the most extreme situations or hardships. Gordon Fee, uh, an esteemed Greek scholar, says this. He says, what it means is love has the tenacity in the present buoyed by its absolute confidence in the future that enables it to live in every kind of circumstance and continually pour itself out on behalf of others. And so in this interpretation, there's no limit to love's believing. Love always trusts, as the NIV says, or love never loses faith, as the New Living Version says. And so if this interpretation is right, then the question naturally is, love always trusts, trusts what? Does it trust the person being loved, or does it trust in God and what he can do for the person you're loving? And I believe the statement signifies that a Christian has faith in God who will work out his plans even when things are not really working out the way you think they should. Filled with love for his neighbor, a believer has faith that God will fulfill his purposes for them. No matter how bad things get, God still has the last word, and he's always working behind the scenes to fulfill his plan. Gordon Fee says this, he says, Paul does not mean that love always believes the best about everything and everyone, but that love never ceases to have faith, which is why it can endure. Love has faith, faith in God. And so in the second interpretation, it's not about just trusting the other person, a person who may be unworthy of our trust. It's about trusting God to work in the lives of those he's called to love. It's, it is continuing to believe that he is working and will keep on working in their lives. Christian love never gives up. It never loses confidence in what God can do. And you know, when you start thinking of who, who has exhibited this kind of love that has confidence through all kinds of circumstances, of course, Jesus again comes to mind. In Jesus, we see an example of unrelenting confidence in God. We see it at the time of the crucifixion. We see it when Jesus was experiencing the most intense kind of suffering possible. Nevertheless, in he, even his dying words, he is expressing his unflappable faith in his Father. And that's why he never has to give up. Phil Reichen describes Jesus' trust in his Father at the point of his death this way. He says, The Apostle Peter gave explicit witness to Jesus' faith in his Father when he said, While Jesus was suffering for our sins, he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He just put himself in his Father's hands when he was suffering. It says, even in the most desperate circumstances, at the point of death, when he was forsaken by the Father and crushed by the weight of divine judgments, Jesus still trusted his Father's love. And he goes on to explain several ways you see this confidence in Jesus at the time of he was being crucified. He says, first of all, Jesus believed that God is there. That's why he prayed. That's why he talked to the Father. Even when he felt forsaken by the Father and could not sense the Father's presence, he continued to believe that God would hear his prayers, and so he prayed. Second, he says that Jesus believed in God as Father. 
as the eternal son. He had known God as father since the world had begun, but in the weakness of his humanity while he was dying and feeling forsaken by his father, he still prayed to God as his father. Now, it's true that when he was on the cross, at one point, Jesus broke away from his normal pattern of talking to his father as father, and he called out to him and said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And that's one of the only places you see Jesus crying out to his father without calling him father. Instead, he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And at that point, he felt cut off from his father because he was bearing our sins. But after that, while he was still on the cross at the point of death, he returned to addressing God as his father when he prayed, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Jesus understood, even when the circumstances in his life screamed that he was abandoned, he still understood that God was his father. A third belief Jesus had that gave him confidence was he believed in life after death. And in committing his spirit to his father, Jesus was declaring that death by crucifixion would not be the end for him, that there was another side. And that he, his soul would live on forever with his father on the other side. And when you have an eternal perspective of things, you can endure temporary losses because you know that the circumstances in your life don't have the last word. A fourth way Jesus expressed his confidence in his father was he believed in his father's love. Not only did he have a father, but he was a loving father. And by putting his spirit in safekeeping of, the safekeeping of his father, he was placing his life in his father's care. And Jesus could only do this if he had confidence in his father. And fifthly, Jesus believed that his death would atone for sin, that it was going to accomplish the purpose for which God had sent him. He didn't say this so much in words on the cross, but it was shared by implication when he asked the Father to receive him. The thought is that he was asking the Father to receive his work and to receive his life and all that he had done and to accept the sacrifice he was making for our sins and dying on the cross. He was leaving his saving work in God's hand, trusting the Father would raise his body again from the grave and give, grant forgiveness to his people. With his dying words, Jesus expressed his full confidence that we would be saved because of his work. So Jesus trusted that in the pain he experienced in life, he was still accomplishing his Father's purposes for us. Riken wraps up what he's saying here when he says, when we see Jesus on the cross, we see a man showing us how to believe all things. Love believes all things. This is how you believe all things. And what enabled him to believe all these things was love. Love for his Father and love for us. When we have the kind of loving relationship Jesus had with the Father, we're able to trust all the way to death and beyond. So even in the most desperate circumstances, even being at the point of death, even being crushed by the weight of divine judgment because he was bearing our sins, Jesus still had total confidence in his Father, even when he didn't feel it. Do you believe God's trustworthy? You know, do you believe that he wants what's best for you? And do you trust his love for those you care so much about, those you are trying to love? Do you believe that he wants what's best for them too? 
and that he'll respond to your prayers for them. True love trusts God and believes that he's working for our good. And having that kind of love starts with knowing how much love God loves you. Lewis Mead said this, the deepest motive for believing is the awareness of being loved by God. When you understand you are loved by God, even when things in life don't make sense, you can rest in that love. Love always trusts. It always believes the best about God. And once you have this kind of belief, you're filled with hope. Secondly, love always hopes. Hope is uh, the same as trust, only it's looking to the future. Hope is, one person said, hope is simply future-oriented trust. It trusts what God will do. And believers who look to God look forward, not backward. They know that that God is still working. They know that their failures are not the end of the story. They trust that in God's promise that he is working all things together for good for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. John MacArthur put it this way. He says, even when belief in love, one's goodness is shattered, even when they blow it big time, in their lives or go the wrong direction, love still hopes. He says, as long as God's grace is operative, human failure is never final. Do you believe that? (laughs) God would not take Israel's failure as final. Jesus would not take Peter's failure as final. Paul would not take the Corinthians' failure as final. He says, there's more than enough promises in the Bible to make love hopeful. He says, the parents of black-backslidden children, the spouse of an unbelieving marriage partner, the church that has disciplined members who do not repent, all hope in a love that the child or the spouse or the erring brother or sister will be restored. (laughs) Love refuses to take failure as final. As long as there is life, love does not lose hope. He shares a story of a dog who's, that stayed at an airport in a large city for over five years waiting for his master to return. And the employees at the airport fed the dog and took care of him, but he would not leave where he last saw his master. He would not give up hope that someday he would return. And he says as if the dog's love for his master can produce that kind of hope, how much longer should our love make us hope? (laughs) How much longer should we hope for those we love? And so love always hopes because it always trusts. Actually, all three of these things tie together if you think about it. Love always trusts, so it always hopes, so it always endures. They're inseparable. They're kind of interwoven. Because you trust, you hope, and because you hope, you endure. Now, there, there are two types of hope. One is hoping for something, and the other is hoping in someone. And as Christians, our hope is the second type of hope. It is hoping in God. That means we trust him even more than what we want to happen. 
Our hope isn't just centered on the things we want fixed in our lives. We trust that he's in control and that he's going to make the right choices. Even when things don't make sense, we trust that God knows best. Our confidence is in who he is, not what he does. And that's really important there because Christians often get confused when things don't work out in their lives the way they wish they would. But in reality, our confidence is centered, as Jesus's was, in who his Father is. And Christians are filled with hope because they know God. And they're sure that he's working in response to their prayers. They know that the failures of those they love need not be the end of their story. And they trust in God's promises. Christian love always hopes against all odds Christian love believes that no matter how dark things get in the life of their loved ones, God's still in control. The resurrection of Jesus is a reminder that no matter how hopeless things seem, God still has the last word. Pastor Pete Wilson tells a powerful story about how love always hopes. He shares how he and his wife Brandy had met this great couple at one of their kids' basketball games. This great couple, Ty and Lori, had a daughter who played on the same basketball team with one of their children. And over time, they went to the games together, and they spent time together, met each other at the games, and they struck up a very close friendship and began to do more and more together as couples. And Pete said, Ty and Lori were the kind of people you wanted to do life with. (laughs) They were that fun kind of people, full of energy, full of life. Ty, at one point, had been training to be an Olympic track and field athlete, and he was the obvious life of the party in most social gatherings. He was just an enjoyable, fun-filled person to be with. One day, uh, when working out at the gym, one of Brandy's friends said to her, I noticed that you and Pete are hanging around with Ty and Lori a lot. And she asked her, do you know about Ty? And uh, she said, no, what? And she says, well, Ty is a sex offender. And, And Brandy was shocked. She could hardly believe it. That night when she got home, she and Pete got on the computer and they looked up old news articles and they discovered it was true. When Ty was 22 years old, 20 years before this, he had gotten involved with a 17-year-old girl he was coaching and the parents of the girl pressed charges and now for the rest of his life, he would be known as a sex offender. You know, laws assume that once a sex offender, always a sex offender, and as a sex offender, there were many rules that Ty had to abide by. Community correction officers must approve sex offenders' residential choices and living arrangements. They can't move without permission. Sex offenders can't control our own, some of them can't control our own personal computers, uh, They have to allow community correction officers to inspect any part of their home at any time. Many offenders had to obtain psychosexual evaluations and treatment from state-certified sexual deviance counselors. 
Offenders had to disclose information about their conviction to potential adult sexual partners before beginning a relationship with them. They must also inform their CCO of any romantic relationships so that they can uh, uh, ascertain that there are no potential child victims accessible in the setting in which they're going to be in. Ty was not allowed to be on school property, even to pick up his kids without first checking with the principal to whom he would have to reveal that he was, in fact, a sexual offender. Ty loved sports, but he would never be allowed to coach a team with, for one of his kids. And every time he moved, he had to register their new address with law enforcement. The address, the change of address, uh, for sex offenders was usually announced in the paper and on certain websites, and so it wasn't uncommon if they changed houses to find signs in their front yard that said things like, dirty perverts not welcome here, go to hell but not in our neighborhood. Shame on you, and child molester lives here. The consequences of his actions have been brutal for Ty. He has accepted that what he did was inexcusable, but his sin haunts him for the rest of his life. He knows he deserves punishment, but it kills him to see his wife and children paying the price for choices he made so long ago. Well, Pete goes on and says this. He says, recently Ty found out his mother had inoperable colon cancer. His mother, who alone had stood by his side through all that he had gone through. His mother, who he knew he had severely disappointed so many times through the years. His mother, who had loved him unconditionally through it all, only now had months to live. Well, his mother died and Ty was devastated, as you might imagine. His lifelong cheerleader, the one who stood by his side when no one else would, was gone. Ty asked Pete to do the funeral for them, for her. And he told Pete, um, I'm not sure what this means, but there are a couple verses my mother wants me to stand up and read at the funeral. He said, I, I really don't understand what these verses mean, but I have a feeling that she's trying to leave a message for me in them. And the passage that his mother gave to him that she wanted him to read in the, in the funeral was Lamentations 3, 21 and 22, where the author says, This I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. Because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed, for his compassions never fail. And Pete said, Ty, man, I love those verses. He says, do you know what your mom's trying to say through them? He says, she wants you to know that your sin hasn't made you a second-class citizen. She wants you to experience the healing power of Jesus' forgiveness, which is available to us fresh every morning. She wants you to know that regardless of what you've done or where you've been, Jesus is here to set you free. 
And Pete says, I couldn't help but think the rest of the day how powerful that statement was from his dying mother to him, to her struggling son. You see, while the rest of the world looked at Ty and thought, sexual offender, she looked at her son and thought, forgiven. Jesus, because he loves us, came to heal our brokenness, and with him, there is always a future and a hope. No matter where you've been, no matter what you've done, as you look to him, there is always a bright future for you. In Jesus, there's a fresh start anytime. That's hope. There's, there's a song uh, we used to hear a while back. It says this, all this pain, I wonder if I'll ever find my way. I wonder if my life can really change at all. All this earth, could all that's lost be found? Could a garden come up from this ground at all? And then it says, hey, you make beautiful things. You make beautiful things out of dust. <laughs> all around, hope is springing up from this old ground. Out of chaos, life is being found in you. Because you make beautiful things, you make beautiful things out of dust, you make beautiful things, you make beautiful things out of us. You know, despite our failures, we always have hope because God is making things new. When it seems like the person you love is all but destroyed and you wonder if they can ever recover from their failure, remember that God can still change everything. Hope sees what can be, not what has been. That's the beauty of hope. Paul ends this list of characteristics of love with the statement that love endures all things. Love always perseveres. That means it never gives up. It never gives up on people. It never stops trusting. It never loses hopes. Never. God's love is like this. The Life Application Bible says this. Believers who... who Love are active and steadfast in their faith. They hold on no matter what difficulties they face. Hardship and pain do not stop love. It says when believers persevere, they face suffering within the body. They may face persecution, but they hang on when the going gets tough. They strive to save their marriages despite disappointment, to continue to trust God despite setbacks, and to continue to serve God despite fear and sorrow. When believers truly persevere, nothing can stop them. That's kind of a picture, again, of God's love. God's love is a relentless love. Since the beginning of time, God pursued humanity with unremitting, persistent, relentless grace. When Jesus was shunned and kicked and mocked and blasphemed and insulted and cursed and hated and offended, he came back time and time again, taking one blow after another, but extending mercy and grace to all who would repent. We're all only a repentance away from God's grace. In my reading through the Bible, the thing that stands out to me more than anything else is God is a loving God. Sure, you see God get angry at times. 
But what I see more is, is God's relentless love. Despite Israel's persistent failure to maintain the covenant promises, God never gives up on them. Thousands of years, he sent prophets to Israel with warning after warning, calling them back to himself. Over and over, God's people rejected God's messengers and persecuted them, even killing them. Finally, God sent his own son, the ultimate expression of his relentless love. When Jesus arrived, instead of being received, they tortured him and killed him just as they had done the other messengers. And yet, you still hear God's voice crying out for his people. In the Old Testament, it says this. God says, how can I give you up, Israel? How can I let you go? How can I destroy you like Adma and demolish you like Zeboam? My heart is torn within me and my compassion overflows. Do you, do you think of that as a description of God? My heart is torn within me and my compassion overflows. Is, is that the God you serve? <laughs> how often God calls to the prodigal, how relentlessly he extends grace to the sinner. His persistence is unrelenting. At one point he says, behold, I stand at the door and knock, but he doesn't knock like the UPS man does when he drops a package on your front step. He doesn't knock once and then walk away. He knocks and knocks and knocks. <laughs> he knocks and keeps on knocking. He speaks through his messengers. He speaks through situations. He speaks through nature. He speaks through science. He speaks through the Bible. He speaks through our conscience. And most of all, he speaks through his Holy Spirit. And to some, his persistence is annoying. But if you've been saved, it's amazing grace. Because without his drawing, none of us would ever come to him. <laughs> and so for those of us who are his children, God wants us To love like he loves. He wants us to love with a love that never gives up. The New Living Bible says this, love never stops believing. It never loses faith. It's always hopeful. It endures through every circumstance. You know, love can be exhausting. Yeah, don't let anybody fool you about that. The kind of love that really makes a difference can take everything you have. Sometimes you just don't feel like you have any more to give. You may think, I just can't face another need, another problem, another heartache, so you just stop loving. Or maybe you need to show love to a particular person who's not easy to love, someone who's demanding or selfish and never returns your love, and you just think to yourself, okay, I'm done, I tried, gave it my best shot, no more, I'm finished. That, that's perfectly natural, but that's not the kind of love that's described here. That's not the kind of love that should identify the Christian. The standard of love that God calls us to is a love that never gives up. It never loses faith. It's always hopeful. It endures through every circumstance. That's the kind of love that Jesus demonstrates to us, and that's the kind of love we're called to show the world you know, it's my hope that you'll trust God's loving care
for those you love. You'll believe God's loving care for you first of all, but you'll trust it for those you love. I hope you'll continue to persistently pray for them, no matter how discouraging circumstances get. What about the parent you feel like you've never been able to please? What about the wayward son or daughter you've prayed for for so long? What about the spouse who won't love you in return? What about that difficult work relationship you endure every day? Love continues to, continues to believe that God can change these things. He can change these relationships. He can bring up life out of a dry and crusty ground. It never quits reaching out. It endures all the challenges that are thrown at it. It endures whatever comes, just like Jesus endured the cross. Love does not quit. It hangs in there through thick and thin. That's the kind of love that Jesus has demonstrated toward you, and that's the kind of love he asks you to share with one another. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we transition to communion, we think what a beautiful passage to lead us into the celebration of Jesus' death for us. A passage on the relentless love of the believer, the relentless love of Christ, first of all, and the relentless love that we should have for one another. Father, I pray that as we get ready to participate in this celebration, this first Sunday of the new year, this celebration of the cross of Christ, I pray that we would be humble and receptive and thankful and joyful because your love didn't give up on us. We gave you so many reasons to give up on us, but you didn't. And we thank you for that. And so we celebrate the love of Christ this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. We hope you are blessed by the message today. Follow us on social media to keep up to date with church news and events.